Good morning. Good morning. Uh, if you've not figured it out, I'm not Dan Fisher. Uh, my name's Ike Burris. Uh, Peggy and I joined, what, three, three months ago? And just thrilled to be here. Uh, we uh, were praying about, uh, we knew God was, gonna, was doing something in our lives, and we prayed and prayed about it. We love Dan, we love Paul, and we've been supporting uh, uh, Reclaim America for Christ, and just just really love those two guys. And uh, then we got in a position that that we could we were able to start visiting some churches, and so we visited here for a while. Peggy said, "You know, Charlie Meadows goes there." And I said, well, "Let's visit anyway," and just <laughs> and just. Just, just see what it's like, and uh, and we just loved it, and we've we've, uh, I mean, we're so thrilled to be here. We're so blessed with Paul and Dan's teaching, and the fellowship we've had so far. Just really look forward to getting to know most of you, if not all of you. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, we love you. We thank you for everything you've given us, and when we peel it all back, you're really all we have. And because of you and because of Christ and the sacrificial death, a horrible death, we're going to be celebrating his resurrection in a few weeks. And help us to think about that and live in that every day instead of just a couple of weeks a year. Now I pray that you'll just calm me down. Let me not say anything I shouldn't say and just be honored with everything we talk about. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I was really tickled uh, when Paul and Dan, and I think it's a great idea, were asking us to write our testimonies. And uh, I love people. I love getting to know people. And something I really, really enjoy is, uh, is understanding your story and especially your faith story, how you came to Christ. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. Uh, back in uh, probably 30 years ago, in my corporate life, uh, I told you about Peggy. She's my wife. We have four children. And uh, I worked for a company in the healthcare business for 35 years. And then we were going through some mergers, and uh, they created a group of about 60 of us, and we were to kick off a new division. And we had a meeting, and in this meeting, they uh, gave us a tablet. But anyway, they t- said, take, take a piece of paper, across the center of the paper, draw a line, horizontal line across the paper. And then we only had about 10 minutes to do this, but it was kind of an icebreaker or a team-building exercise. And they said, uh, plot below the line and above the line is what they call the the uh, exercise. And they said, plot significant events in your life and negative events in your life. Significant, both positive and negative. And again, we only had 10 minutes. They said, just put down four, six, whatever it is. So we did that. And then we broke up into smaller groups of about six, went to different parts of the meeting area. And we put our story, that, that was called our story, put it on the wall. And most of us didn't know each other because we were all coming together from all over the country. 
and we'd heard of each other but never had met really. And as people, as guys and gals, just again, only had five minutes to talk about their life, they would put that up there and, uh, and you'd find out what people had struggled with and what they were dealing with. A few guys, actually only about two of us, talked about a significant event was accepting Christ. And uh, anyway, that's all we had of that. But it's amazing how that bonded us, although we weren't together and we weren't in the same area. And when the meeting was over, we went all over the country back to our homes. But we would get together once a year at national sales meetings. And we had that, because we had that, we had kind of a little a bonding. And when I got home, I, uh, I was so, that was such a meaningful exercise to me that when I got home um, a few months later, I decided to make a life chart and just do a chart of my life. And that's a life chart that I made uh, of my own life. And the whole point was I made it and I was just, just to make it. I didn't know that God was leading me to do it. I, I just did it. And once I got it on paper and began to look at that, and I realized that in that thing that was a disappointment, that thing that was insignificant, as I looked at it, was God equipping me for something else. And all of us have that. So I'm going to talk about my life this morning and what God has taken a, a frightened 10-year-old boy and over the period of, ooh, I tell you, 68 years from that time uh, has, has created a joyful Christian. But uh, and So I'm just going to tell you my story. That's okay, Dan. You can take that down for right now because uh, people will be reading ahead. I know I would if I was out there. But anyway, uh, I expanded that, and, and so I'm just going to tell you my story. Uh, I was so blessed to be born into a Christian home. My mom was a homemaker. My dad was a captain with the Dallas Fire Department. And, uh, and I had Christian grandparents. And I never knew my great-grandparents, but we had an incredible heritage. And that's just, that's one thing that, uh, that if, if you're the, you may be the first in your, gener- in your family to start that. But what a blessing to have that spiritual heritage in my family. And uh, when I was 10 years old, we lived in Oak Cliff, suburb of Dallas. A lot of you, I'm sure, know about it or know of Oak Cliff. Went to Hampton Road Baptist Church. And we had a revival, and uh, my sister, we had, I had a sister, there were just two of us, two siblings. My sister was 18 months older than me, and we had a revival. And the second or third night of the revival, I just knew the Holy Spirit was saying, this is it. Because I'd been in church, my dad was, was taught RAs, and we, we were training, and you know, we, I was so exposed to truth, and it was finally coming together for me at 10 years old. And I was sitting next to my dad, and he was at the end of the aisle. And I t- said, "Dad, I need to, I need to go down." And he said, "Well, uh, let's let's wait a little bit. I want to talk to you when I get home." So we got home, and he and my mom, but it's primarily my dad, explained to me the plan of salvation, everything I sort of knew, and answered questions, and then he welcomed me into the kingdom, and uh, and my dad led me to Christ. What a thrill that was for me. And I remember him hugging me and telling me how proud he was that I'd made that decision. And, uh, and then explained, and I didn't really understand, but he said, <clears throat> excuse me, we're brothers. 
And he talked about being brothers in Christ. And I was just, excuse me, on top of the world. I guess this thing's on. Do I need this? Okay. (laughs) Thank you. But uh, life was great. I'd made the best decision of my life. And I was uh, so excited about making that decision and doing stuff at church with my dad. And three weeks later, he was killed uh, in, in the line of duty. And I remember, I mean, you know, that's just printed. I can remember it like it was yesterday. And when I was told that my dad had been killed, I just, all I could say was no, just scream, no. I I can't go through life without a dad. I need my dad. And uh, I just could not understand how this would happen. And my relationship with Christ at that point went from a loving uh relationship and a growing relationship to I became afraid of God afraid he was going to take something else from me mainly my mom and that's and I lived my whole life the next 20 years especially the next 10 years just deathly afraid I was going to lose my mom somehow some way we went through a lot of changes when that happened my mom was a homemaker we moved to Arlington Texas uh, which wasn't too far, but that's where my mom was from, my dad was from, moved in with two, uh, my two aunts and a grandmother. Uh, they, uh, they were school teachers in high school, and so we moved in there. And you talk about the changes. I mean, this was like he was killed August 3rd, and I started school in another school, another town, uh, September 1st. And this 10-year-old didn't know where to put any of that. I mean, I just, I, just I, I, didn't, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I just, in fact, I had a, very, a severe stuttering problem when, uh, when I started school. And fortunately, again, I, I used to call that stuff luck, but now I understand it's the providence of God working in my life. But Dallas was one of the first school systems in the country to have speech therapy. So they got me through by about the third grade. I'd they got me back into mainstream into classes, and, and I wasn't starting. Well, I was started stuttering again when that happened. And I was just devastated. I was going to start at the fifth grade in a new school, have to make new friends, and I can't talk. You know, and stuttering is not an issue unless you want to say something. And then it becomes a real issue. Uh, and then when you say things, people think they think you, you don't, you, you know, you're not, you don't have it together. Or there's something missing in your life, and there was. But anyway, I, I want to I make one point about going back to school. And you can imagine all that I was going through uh, as a 10-year-old. And uh, God bless Christian teachers. I mean, it, I just can't overemphasize the impact that had on my life. And Christian coaches. And Christian men in the community. And at the time, everybody knew everybody in Arlington. Arlington was maybe 3,000 people. Wasn't very big at all. And the Butler family, uh, my aunts and my grandmother, they were a significant uh, high-profile family just because they taught in high school. And everybody knew them. And everybody in town had had them. And then she had taught them. And either one of the aunts had taught math or history. So we moved in with them and uh, started the fifth grade. Didn't have grief counseling back then. And uh, I would be in class. My sister said, I'm the ugliest crier she's ever seen. Because uh, 
But I would be in class as a fifth grader, new place, new situation, and my chin would start quivering just before I started crying. And I did not want to cry in class, but I didn't have any choice. I, I didn't know where I was going to go or what I was going to do. Ms. Goodman, my fifth grade teacher, bless her heart, she knew my aunts. Everybody knew my situation, and she knew my aunts, and she, she would, she, I didn't know it, but she was watching me. And she could see that chin quiver. And she said, I, can't, I need you to do something for me. Well, I thought I was in trouble. I didn't know. You know I'd never been called out in class. And she said, come out in the hall with me. And so I went out in the hall with her. With her and she said, you're about to cry, aren't you? And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, uh, I can hug you. you can, I'll just walk off and leave you alone. Go to the restroom. It's your choice. Bless her heart. And by then, I was, I mean, that just broke the dam. And I just stood there, and she hugged me for about five minutes and just let me bawl. But thank goodness I had a Christian fifth-grade teacher. She did that probably six, maybe eight times during the year. She would keep an eye on me, and she would see something, and... uh and she would have me do something. Everybody thought I was her pet, but uh, she'd take me out in the hall, and I can still smell whatever perfume she had on. <laughs> but she would hug me, and that's what I preferred. But anyway, it's just incredible the impact teachers have. Now, not just, not just teachers, but kids like this scared 10-year-old, and so many today the young people going through 2020 and what we went through. I mean, they're kids that don't have the answer at home. They're looking for role models. And, they're, and, and we just need to be aware of that. My boys asked me, because my dad died when I was 10, they'd ask me, well, do you talk like your dad? Do you, or, or do you know if you're like your dad at all? And I would tell them that... Uh, that I wanted to talk like Coach Malone. I wanted to walk like Coach Pennington. I wanted to smile like Coach Curley. I wanted to dress like Mr. Hughes. He was a Sunday school teacher. And so I was looking. I didn't know I was looking. I was just looking for, for good role models. And, and thank goodness uh, that God provided these men and these ladies in my life. Just Just... To protect me. God says he is, and, and I remember when I really got frustrated about not having a dad and doing things, and my mom showed me in, in Psalms where God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. That's a big deal. I mean, that became a huge, huge deal to me. But during that time, again, 10 years old and the mind of a 10-year-old, I would hear my mom cry at night. And I made a commitment when I was 10 years old, I would never cause my mom to cry. That's what kept me out of trouble. Because my relationship, I was afraid of God, so I didn't want to get real close to God. But I had all kinds of opportunities to do really stupid stuff. But I didn't because I didn't want to cause my mom to cry. And uh, for the next 20 years, that kind of... In, in fact, one thing I need to tell you that I forgot. Uh, again, at 10, my mom got a job. General Motors had just opened in Arlington. And she got a job there. And 
uh, on the weekend, she and my sister would drive to Fort Worth and shop. And I never wanted to go because I want to play ball with my friends and do things like that. So I would stay, I would stay home and I would make her promise me what time she was going to be home. And if she said she's going to be home at 4.30 and it was 4.32, I was a basket case because I knew it's happened. Or if I heard, and man, you talk about a real basket case if I heard a siren. You didn't hear sirens much in Arlington, but uh, th- that's just, that's, that's, that's was this frightened, frightened little 10-year-old boy. And I'm trying to figure out life and go through life and thank God I had coaches and, and Christian role models. In, in Sunday school and training union and RAs. And I mean, it was just incredible to have had that. Now, for the next 20 years, I was really not particularly excited about growing as a Christian. I just, I just was just going through life. Uh, got through college, went to the Navy, got married. That's the best thing that happened to me is, is Peggy Burris now. And then we started a family and went, again, in, into the Navy, uh, got married, uh, survived Vietnam, came home, disappointment that, uh, that the career I wanted to, was dry, had dried up pretty much because Vietnam had flooded the market with pilots. And they didn't need any pilots by the time I got out. So I had to do something, wound up in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, with a company called American Hospital Supply, great company. I didn't know that. And, and everything, everything, I was not praying about those things. I was just going through life and doing the right things, going to church, doing those things. But the intercessory prayer of a mom, the intercessory prayer of a mom, I'm convinced, sustained me. And not only my mom, but the people at Hampton Road Baptist Church were praying. I mean, so many people were praying for us, and that's the reason that I was able to, in my mind, my commitment to not hurting my mom plus the people praying for us, somehow we survived all that. Then we uh, moved, moved to Oklahoma City, moved to the village, got a rent house. Uh, it was in April. It started snowing when we were moving in the house. It was started moving like on a Thursday, and we just this was exciting to the boys, but we were trying to keep the keep it clean, keep them, you know, all those things were going going through. But anyway, we moved in, and uh, pretty much sick of the boys, and uh, and just all that stuff worn out from moving in. And uh, I told Peggy, I said, we're going to go to church in the morning. She said, where? Peggy had been raised a Presbyterian. Uh, and I've been raised a Baptist, and I just knew I needed to be in church. I needed to be in church because we could have an hour and a half of peace. We could <laughs> we could put Scott in the nursery and Jay and where, whatever they did with six-year-olds or seven, whatever, however old he was at the time. But uh, So we went to church, and, and by being in church, <clears throat> that particular Sunday, they were forming a softball team, so on Monday they were going to have practice, and I went to that. We, we immediately had a group of friends, uh, and we didn't go through any uh, extended period of time to uh, to get acquainted with things and and you know and just uh, settle into Oklahoma. I mean, it was there immediately, and then Peggy started going to Bible study, <clears throat> and uh, with a lady named Kathy Herndon, and a lot of you may know Kathy, and. Uh, and as she went to the Bible study, she kept telling me, being excited, 
<clears throat> telling me about what she was learning. And I thought that was good. And then she said she accepted Christ as her Savior. She got saved. And uh, she didn't get over it. I mean, she just, she just couldn't get enough. And we'd go to church, and she would talk about even the songs had a meaning to her that they never had had before. And the messages and all she wanted to do was talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, talk about the message and what I think about this. And a successful Sunday for me was to get home in time for the cowboy game. And that's horrible. And, and, and it's horrible. But that's, that, was, that was where I was spiritually. Then uh, she kept growing and kept growing. And I said, and I, did, I wasn't, I was a Christian. I mean, how dare she not be a Christian, become a Christian and grow faster than me? Something is bad and wrong with me. But I didn't know what it was. I mean, I had, I, I had no idea what it was. I was doing the right thing. I was doing good things, but I, I was still, that afraidness had just become a uh, callous over my, over my heart. Then we went to something called Institute of Basic Youth Conflict. Bill Gothard seminar came to Oklahoma, and uh, friends were at church. were talking about it. They were going to go, and it was going to be I don't know how many nights, three nights, five nights, whatever it was. But uh, I was very selfish with my time, and I didn't want to do it, but I did it because everybody else was going to do it. First night was tolerable. Uh, said some good things, but my heart was the. What else could I be doing? And uh, then the second night. He mentioned about the danger of allowing a root of bitterness to grow in your life. The danger that can do to you. The danger that can do to so many people around you. And it's like, it, it was like I, I came out of the desert into a spring. Into I mean, it was unbelievable. And I got home and told Peggy about it and I... We prayed and prayed, and I confessed the fact that that I'd allowed this spirit of this root of bitterness to grow up in my life, and it had cost me so much. I just I, I couldn't I couldn't believe that. But the, but from that point on, I was able to tag along behind Peggy. I didn't catch up with her, but uh, but it was just amazing. Once that once I faced that, and God showed that to me, it's. Uh, I mean, my whole life changed. Then uh, I began to see things as, uh, uh, Dan, would you put the chart back up, my life chart? Uh, then as I began to look at those things, I realized the providence of God that had been working in my life and the lessons God had taught me over the years that I didn't know. I just thought it was a good thing, a lucky thing, an unlucky thing. I, I didn't know. And so one of the loudest lessons I learned was in, in the Navy. And I'll, go, I'll swing back to that because every one of those points has a story behind it and a scripture behind it in my life, as it would in your life if you ever plot your life out. But I, was a, I went to uh, aviation officer candidate school in Pensacola. Uh, you had to go through officer school, get your ensign bar, and then you went through flight prep, and then you start flying. And, and this is all out of Softly Field in Pensacola. 
And how many of you have ever been really disappointed about something that you thought you were going to get to do and never got to do? I'm sure most of you. Um, I was so excited to take my first orientation flight because that was the one that everybody talked about. You went up. uh, the, The instructor basically tried to make you sick. But you went up, you did high altitude maneuvers and aerobatics and all those things. And I was looking so forward to doing that for my first flight. And my first flight was scheduled at a morning lunch. And I went there and I was ready. And, uh, and the instructor met my instructor and he explained that they were building I-10 through Pensacola at that time. And they were doing blasting in the morning. And so we couldn't go, do to, go to the L-4 area and do the high altitude stuff. Well, I was disappointed and we... Uh, uh, we we did what they call FCLPs, and that stands for Field Carrier Landing Practices. And they had airstrips all over the Panhandle, out in the country, and around Pensacola and into Alabama. And they were short fields. And it was just to simulate landing on a carrier. And so we did what they call touch and goes because we, we couldn't go do anything else. So the instructor said, just the instructor's in back. It's a tandem cockpit. And he said, just barely, barely touch the stick. And then I'm, we're going to do, we'll do about 12 touch and goes. And that means you come around, you get in the downwind, you know, downwind leg, and then you wrap around and you go into upwind and you, and you land, make sure you get your gear down and locked and all those things that you have to do and go through the checklist for that. And uh, we did 12 of those, and, it, and I, I kind of felt what was going on. So we did that, and that was something I guess I needed to know. And, uh, and so that, that was that flight. So the next day I had an afternoon launch. That happened three days in a row, that they were blasting, and I couldn't go do that. And we did FCLPs. For, and, and, and by the time I was going to get to do my introductory flight and my orientation flight, I, uh, uh, I'd already done like 36 landings, not me, but with the instructor. And he let me do a couple, uh, toward the end of the third day. So I'm all excited. I get there to do my morning launch, go over with the instructor. He said, we're going to go to the L4 area. Finally, we're going to enter it between five and 7,000 feet. And we're going to do these, these, uh, maneuvers. I'll do them. You just hang on. And uh, be sure you get your sickness bag. And, you know, and you always check out a parachute. And he said, uh, we're an SF-204 because you've got 200 planes out there. And the only significant difference in them, they're all exactly alike, except they have SF and a number on the tail section. So I found the plane. And he said, you've done a good job so far. So go pre-flight the aircraft. He wanted to drink another cup of coffee. Get it. Pull the chocks. Start the engine. Pull the chocks. Come by. I won't say anything to you until I need to override something that you've done. So get in position, you know, taxi up to the ready room. I'll get in and we'll go. And so excited about that. I took extra long pre-flighting because I just knew he had done something that he wanted me to catch when I was doing a pre-flight. Well, I didn't catch anything. And I went around it a couple of times. So I got in the plane, got it started, pulled the chocks, taxied around, and, I'm, and when I'm waiting for him to get in, I've got, the, I've got both pedals pushed down. So I didn't want to come off a pedal and clip my instructor with a wing. I just, I mean, my legs, were just, my legs were just quivering. I was holding those brakes so hard. And, of course, you got your mask on and your ICS, which is inner, Peggy doesn't like the, my acronyms. It's, uh, 
It's it's the intercom system that you speak to, and you got to plug your helmet into the to the cord that that's in the aircraft, and that way you can communicate with uh, with the, the the man in back, the the instructor. So uh, I felt him get in, and I taxied out, went to the engine run up, carb checked, magneto, all those things, got in position, took off. Man, I'm killing this thing because he hadn't said a word, and I've done everything, I guess, perfect. And so we're flying, and we're getting up to, toward the L4 area. And I said, uh, sir, what altitude do you want me to exactly to go into the L4? And he didn't say anything. So I thought, well, I'm a college graduate. Between 5 and 7 is 6. So I said, sir, I'm going to enter, enter the L4 at 6,000 feet, if that's okay. And he didn't say anything. So I went at 6,000. Well, I got into the L4 area. I didn't know what to do. I mean, I've got it. I've got it level, and that's about all I need to do. I wasn't about to do a wing over or anything like that. And so I said, well, "What do you say? I, you got it." I, I didn't know what I was supposed to say to him, and I said, "Sir, uh, what do you want me to do?" And he didn't say anything. And I asked him several times, "What do you want me to do?" And he didn't say anything. Uh, and I said, "Will you double click if you can hear me?" No double click. I thought, okay, he's passed out, he's sick, he's dead. I don't, I don't know what's, I don't know what's going on with him, but he's not talking to me. And I said, sir, uh, can you not? Can, is your eyes? And I made sure mine was plugged in. And then uh, asked him a couple of times. He didn't say anything. And the cockpits are fairly narrow, and so I kind of squirmed around so I could look back at him. I was horrified to see. A guy looked like a tourist. He was had a, didn't even have his visor down. He was just looking out the window, and he waved to me, and I, and I said, "I said, who are you?" And he said, "Sir." I said, "Don't call me sir." I said, "He said." I said, "Is this your first flight?" And he said, "Yeah." And we're screaming at each other because he hadn't got this thing plugged in, and I said, "I don't use that language anymore," but. Uh, <laughs> I explained to him we were going to die because he was an idiot. And uh, but I, I radioed. The, I showed him how to plug the thing in. I didn't want to talk to him anymore. I shouldn't even showed him. But uh, I, I called the tower and said, "This is SF two hundred four. We have a situation." They said, "We know all about your situation." <laughs> and so they said, uh, "Do you think you can land that?" Well. Wasn't it lucky that I was so disappointed and I knew how to land the plane? I thought it's going to be, it would be rough and a hard landing, but I was going to land it. And I knew how to get the gear down and locked. But now I realize that was the providence of God. You're equipping me to do something. And so I told him, I think I can. I was trying to not cry. I mean, I was just, I was just. I mean, I would talk about traumatized. I was totally traumatized. And uh, I said, yes, I, yes, I think I can. So we got two options. There's only, there's less than two knots of wind. So you can pick a runway. We've cleared all the traffic. And we'll, we'll, shoot, we'll, shoot, we'll start shooting the vector at about 3,000 feet. And we'll give you a glide slope and you can come on in. Or you can go out to the Gulf, punch out, and we'll send a helicopter after you. And I said, well, I'm going to try to land this thing. And so, long story short, we got it landed. And he said, they said, do not 
do not try to taxi and just stay right there and we're going to come get you in a jeep and so we stayed there and there were there were fire trucks chasing us and all this stuff but but the whole point is is uh the intercessory prayer of a mom i mean that's what got me through that and the providence of god again i didn't know about that at the time uh then i've got to tell you one one other story and that I'd like to tell you two more, but um, December 18th, 2001 was a great day for me because I was supposed to go to a meeting and speak at a meeting in Texas at 10 o'clock on the 19th of December. I chose to stay home. Normally, I would have driven down that evening <clears throat> and checked into the hotel and been at the meeting because I didn't have to, I wasn't on the program until 10 o'clock. So I, I decided that that evening or that day to stay home because Brooke, our oldest daughter, our third child, oldest girl, uh, had moved back home because she was starting an equestrian center and a riding academy and uh, didn't need to be paying rent for an apartment when she could be living at home. So she was back home, and it was just a thrill to have her at home. And uh, so I decided to stay there. Peggy was getting ready for <clears throat> she was cleaning the house and, and doing some things that evening. Uh, getting ready for an uh, ornament exchange she had had with some friends for years, and she was getting ready for that. So Brooke and I just had the just had the evening to ourselves, and we had so much fun. We went up and put lights up by the barn, and the joke in the family is I don't put lights up until the first horrible freeze comes in, and that's when we're outside trying to do that with numb fingers and all that. And anyway, we got it. We had these running lights. We got those put up, and they were crashing. And we thought that was hilarious. And so we got home. Got, she was always take me to her room and play me the, la- the latest Christian song that she really loved. And by, at that time, I can only imagine, was a song that was I just loved lying on her floor with her, listening to her music. And we made some, she made some hot chocolate. And we turned out all the lights upstairs and stood up there and looked out the window at those crazy lights crashing into each other right there by the barn. And just had a great time. Then she asked me, what time are you leaving tomorrow? I said, 5.30. She said, well, be sure and come in and, and wake me up when you leave. And I said, no, I'm not, I'll do, I won't do that. So she gave me an extra hug that, that morning, uh, that evening before I went to bed. Well, I got down there on the 19th, did the meeting, and it was about a 30-minute window that, uh, that she, should, she could have called me. And she was kind of our mother hen. She was always checking on us, making sure everybody's okay. And she called and said, uh, how's it going, Dad? How was the meeting? Did you, all that? And she, and she was uh, just asking me all those things about myself. She never really wanted to talk about herself. She just asked about us, and how did the meeting go? What did you say? And all that stuff. At the end of the call, I said, as I always did, I love you, sugar. And she said, love you, Daddy. Be careful. So the rest of the day, I had some meetings, went to check in the hotel, uh, Got a call from Peggy at 6.30 that night. Brooke had been killed in a car wreck. Now, the reason I'm telling that story, it's a huge, huge part of our story, our, our family story. Do not, and I don't preach, but I may right now, do not put yourself at risk by not telling a person that you love uh, when you're parting company, either you're together, you're on the phone, whatever, do not miss the opportunity to tell that person you love them. Because I can't tell you what a treasure, I mean a treasure, 
that is to me. So, and, and I tell that any, any, any chance I get, when I talk about Brooke and I talk about that, and then, then what God does for us. Uh, by then, I'm, I've grown spiritually, but I, but, and I knew the scripture all through everything I was going through growing up. God will never leave you or forsake you. And I felt forsaken. And I was just fussing at God. I checked out of the hotel, was driving from Fort Worth to home. And, and again, you don't have to worry about anything as a believer. God's going to move in and do what he does. You don't, have to, you, don't, you don't have to go through a checklist and I hope I'm ready for this. I hope I'm ready for this because you're not. As a believer, God's going to give you what you need when you need it. Well, I just needed to be mad at him and he let me be mad at him. And I needed to be quiet, alone. That's just the way I, I am in situations like that. Peggy needs people. And I mean, God f- filled that house up with people. And she had cleaned the night before. And that was, you know, a little thing, but that's providential. And uh, anyway, she had what she needed. She had a house full of people. I was fussing at God and fussing at God. And all the way from Fort Worth to about halfway between Denton and Gainesville. And then finally, I just, I, I had, I'd done enough of that. And I was going over scripture. God will never leave me or forsake me. And I feel like, and I was going through all that. And I can do all things through Christ. And I was going through all the scriptures that I knew. And um, finally, I just said, I'm the patriarch. I don't feel like a patriarch. I don't even know what to do. There's a lot of decisions that are going to have to be made. I do not know what to do. Within five minutes, a friend of mine that was an undertaker had just moved back to the Oklahoma City area from Denver. Called, and he was crying, and he had heard about Brooke, and he said, I love you. I will do anything you need. You've got a lot of decisions to make. You may already know what to do, but I will be over there tomorrow, and I'll go over, and you don't have to use my company. We will just go through what needs to be done. I mean, and, and I can look back, again, I'd love to tell you about all these stories, but we just don't have time. But it's just amazing what God does that we miss. And he was doing those things, doing those things. And uh, the kids came home. Uh, the boys were in their careers down in Dallas-Fort Worth area. Emily was, came home from Baylor had the family together, and it was just an incredible time we had together. And each, each, I wanted to tell about the last word being love at the funeral. And I remember we were talking, we were planning things, and I said, uh, I've got to do this. And Scott said, Dad, I don't think you can. And I said, well, if I thought I could, I wouldn't. I shouldn't, probably. But uh, I just want to communicate that. Then Peggy said, I need to say something. And that funeral, and then the, all the kids, and it was just an incredible, incredible experience, and uh, of understanding that so many things. But the God we serve, I, you may—I had no idea the depth of His love for me. I also had no idea the depth of the pain that a person could endure, and you don't really endure it. But God showed me. Uh, the pain equals the depth of the love. 
So pain can be a good thing. It just reminds you of the, how much you love that person. Now, let me tell you about the heart of my wife, Peggy. The funeral was on a Saturday. Sunday, we didn't go to church. We were home, and she said, we need to go check on that lady. Because she survived the wreck, and uh, she was in pretty bad shape in the hospital. I mean, that's the farthest thing from my mind. But that's the heart of my wife, and we did that. And it was incredible. I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but, uh, oh, I'd like to tell you a couple of more stories. But anyway, you don't have to be, you don't have to live in fear of loss of anything. God's got it. It's not going to be easy. He's going to provide what he, what he will provide for you before we were having needs met before we even knew there was a need. Just amazing. So, Thanks for listening. If I got, I got three minutes. Maybe I can tell the story in three minutes. Uh, what's a favorite day? The favorite day when you were a kid growing up. What was the favorite day you had? You can say it out loud. Christmas. What else? Halloween. Okay, I got a Halloween friend. There's always one, but uh, <clears throat> but my favorite day was the opening of the State Fair of Texas. Because cause my my dad was, a like I said, uh, th- this was when I was about seven years old. My dad was the captain of the fire department, and I would run home from school that day. We would drive to the to the fair, and we didn't park where normal people park. We, he had a badge, and we parked in back of the fire station on the midway. And I remember the first time was that I noticed those uh, games that you could play and win all these animals. These stuffed animals, and I begged my mom to give me ten cents so I could throw three balls and win something, and I'd give it to her if I wanted. She explained that was gambling and couldn't do that and shouldn't do it. <clears throat> so the next year, I was equipped. I had a plan. I'd save sixty-five cents, and uh, I was going to spend sixty. No telling what I was going to win, and uh, and I had a nickel to buy some potato chips. So. Uh, so we went to the fair. Mom had me by the arm. I mean, just had me by the hand. And we're walking. And, uh, and I can remember like it was yesterday. I pushed her hand off my hand and took out running for that baseball throw knocking over those milk bottles. And the wisdom of my mom, she let me do it. Uh, I was bankrupt. <laughs> In about three minutes. And to me, it wasn't going to be gambling because I was going to be a center fielder in the major leagues. or Either that or a pitcher, they didn't have a chance. It really wasn't fair. But that was this eight-year-old mind at work. But she let me do that. And boy, what a lesson that was to me. But the whole thing is, that's what I see our country has done. We've just pushed God's hand out of our country. And we're the remnant Thank goodness we got people grabbing God's hand, some that never let go. And that's what I see in this church. I'm so blessed to be here. Terrell, will you close prayer? All right, let's pray here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, um, we thank you that uh, 
you are the one who's called us to relationship with yourself. Lord, you have allowed um, so many things to happen to us that with the eyes of flesh we view as um, hard, um, even evil things that have happened, um, difficult things. You've allowed good good to come into our lives. But, Lord, we know that uh, you have promised that um, for those that are the called according to your purpose, that you will work all things together. I don't understand how that happens, but our faith and our trust is in you. I thank you for Ike and Peggy for their um, uh, their faith in you and trust in you in the midst of uh, difficult times and how that has um, reverberated through the years to your glory that, um, uh, Lord, you've made me um, a better husband and a dad by what I remember about Ike and Peggy and Brooke. And uh, we just thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for this time that we have. Uh, may you be glorified um, in and through all of us today as we keep our eyes of faith um, lasered on you, Lord God. Keep your hand on us, Lord God. We never want to push your hand away from us. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing I forgot to say. Thank you, Terrell. Um, after I'd made this chart, when I got home, I, I, I framed it. You can tell that I framed it and, uh, and put it up in my office. And because I was in sales, you saw what it looked like, but uh, up and down, up and down, people would come in my office. Not a, probably it was rare that really somebody noticed it, but every now and then somebody would notice it and they'd say, what, what, what product is that? What, what's happening there? And I would get to tell them, that's my life. They said, that's your life. And I would, I would get to tell them, yeah, and let, let me tell you what God has done in my life. And it's amazing uh, just the conversations we were able to have just because I framed that, and I forgot to tell it, so sorry. Uh, I apologize, Ms. Lucy, because I jumped back in here. <clears throat>